Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 will be our text today. Today will be the last part of our series that began in Isaiah 52, 13 and has continued through the end of this chapter. So I think what I'll do is... I'm going to begin reading at Isaiah 53, verse 4, and I'll read through verse 12, so you can get a bit of the context. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Remember now that what we're about to hear is the word of the living God given to his prophet Isaiah. These words were penned some seven centuries before Jesus Christ ever came to this world, and yet Even then, God had it in his mind and in his heart, in his very decree, exactly what his son would do. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet... He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, And with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we draw near to you with an open Bible, we pray that that you would come, that you would come in in opening up these words to us, 
so that we can understand what they mean, but, but also, Lord, so that, in a sense, the, the page would become translucent and your glory would shine through these words into our hearts. Lord, we want to see your glory. We, we desire to worship you. We know that our, our praise and our honor and our obedience towards you falls so far short. Our faith is weak, Lord. But Father, our faith is real because you've created it. And we pray, Lord, that through faith, you would be showing us your glory in your Son's great accomplishment. And that you would lift up our hearts, that as the God of hope, you would give us joy and peace and fill us with these things as we believe your promises so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would abound with hope. And Father, if there's anyone who is listening to this message who is without God in the world, who has no real hope because he doesn't have Christ, we pray that you would show him his sins, show him the Savior, and draw him to your Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the Lord Jesus Christ looks back upon the horrific sufferings that he experienced, the shame and the pain, the agony, and the horrible weight of God's very wrath pressing down upon him to the death, Jesus has no regrets. Jesus Christ does not regret in the least all that he went through. He does not look back upon his crucifixion and his death as a time that he wished had never happened. He does not wish that he could somehow have avoided it. Instead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God look upon that great event with profound joy and satisfaction. You know, as we have studied this passage in Isaiah 53, in many ways it has been a very dark passage, hasn't it? It is a passage that, that is it's humbling, it's painful to study, it reminds us of the evil of our sins, it confronts us with our foolishness and our pride and our worldliness. And worst of all, it sets before us in such vivid colors the, the pain of our Savior. If this were set to music, it would be surely written in a minor key. But dear friends, we need to remember that Jesus is not on the cross today. He did indeed suffer all these things, and we must remember them, we must bear them in mind, we must constantly, in a manner, fix our eyes upon the crucified, and yet we also need to remember that he who was crucified is crucified no more. And the passage began with that. Perhaps you remember how back in chapter 52, the very first verse that we read in this passage, verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And we talked about how that, that threefold repetition, high and lifted up and exalted, even literally very exalted, emphasizes that, 
that this suffering servant, this one who, who passed through this dark tunnel of pain, has emerged from that tunnel. And he has been given the supreme position of honor and glory over all. You see, the cross is not just a tragic story of of some victim who suffered at the hands of a cruel world. The cross is about the victory of Christ, who has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and even now sits in unspeakable glory at the right hand of God. Indeed, he is the happiest man in the universe. And the Lord says to his people, you remember the words when when the master welcomes his servants on judgment day, what does he say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And this text sets before us the joy of God in Christ in his great accomplishment in a way that in a manner of speaking, even now, he's saying to his people, enter into the joy of your master. He wants us to know the joy and the pleasure that he has even in the cross because of what it accomplished, because Christ's suffering and death has brought about joy. In many ways, this passage in verses 10 through 12 reminds me of what it says in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, where the author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so I ask you, what was the joy? What was the joy that was so weighty, so splendid and magnificent and satisfying that it caused Jesus to say, compared to this joy, the cross is nothing, for me to endure. That's what our text will teach to us tonight. So let's look at the text. Again, we have three verses, three points. First of all, we see the joy of Jesus Christ in that he has become the founding father of God's covenant people. The first point is this, the founding father of God's covenant people. Look at verse 10 with me. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The first thing that we see in this verse is the pleasure of God. The pleasure of God. Now, That's actually a very literal translation of verse 10. In my translation, it says the will of the Lord. But if you have the King James Version, or I believe the New American Standard Version, it talks about it was God's pleasure or it pleased God. And this is a very strange statement because it says it pleased the Lord to crush him. Now, 
God is not cruel. God has no pleasure in suffering itself. God is not a wicked God who delights in hurting anyone, much less his perfect and sinless Son. And so, this is not referring to to God's pleasure in in Christ's suffering per se. It's, It's not saying that. In fact, when Christ was crucified, it was an injustice. It was the worst of crimes, which provokes God's anger and his displeasure. So, what does it mean then when it says the will of the Lord or it pleased the Lord to crush him? And indeed, at the end of the verse, when it says the will of the Lord, or literally, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What pleased God? Well, that's what the verse at the core, the center of it, tells us. It says that, first of all, the guilt offering of the servant, the guilt offering of the servant, when his soul makes an offering for sin. So, what is happening here, what is pleasing to the Father, is not just that his son is suffering, that's horrible, but that his son is suffering for a purpose. And the purpose of his son's suffering is to present himself as what is called a guilt offering. Now, this word has to do with a particular kind of sacrifice that was offered in the Old Testament. It was a sacrifice that was offered as a form of compensation when someone desecrated God's holiness. Now, you may remember that in the Old Testament, God taught His people that His holiness is to be honored and respected, even feared. You remember how the layers of separation between the people and the most holy place, and only the priest could go in. It was all a way of communicating to the people that God is holy. He must be treated as sacred, as special. And yet, what our sins have done again and again and again is we've desecrated His holiness. We've treated God as if He's as common as the dirt that we walk on. We've treated the holy and righteous one, the majestic king, as if he were nothing, that we should listen to him and obey him. And what Christ is doing, what Christ is doing is he is offering himself up as, as Jesus said, a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45, he's he's paying the price. He's offering himself up to make compensation to the justice and righteousness of God. And what will the result of that be? What will the result of it be when he offers himself up to pay God back for this heinous act of desecration that our sins have committed? Well, that brings us to the third thing that we see in this verse. It's not only the pleasure of the Lord and the guilt offering of the servant, but mysteriously the covenant seed of the risen servant. The covenant seed of the risen servant. Now, I know that's not language that we typically use, but look at the verse. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall see seed or offspring. Now, 
The, the servant himself has been cut off. He's been killed. He's been cut off from the land of the living. And we know that Jesus Christ, when he died, he died in his prime of life, but he never married. He never had any physical offspring. His offspring, my friends, don't come from his life. His offspring come from his death. And the pleasure that the father has in his son's pain and sacrifice is the pleasure of seeing how by his ransom, by his redemption, by his dying in the place of his people, he has now bought and purchased a family, spiritual seed. And, and you might think, well, that's, that's kind of odd to think about Jesus of having offspring. That would almost make him to be like a father, right? But you know, that's exactly what Isaiah calls him. You ever thought about this? Most well-known Christmas text in the book of Isaiah, I think, Isaiah 9, 6. It talks about how a child will be born to, to his people, and it says that that child will be called, and you know this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. What's the next one? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this is not saying that, that Jesus Christ is God the Father. It's not saying that he's the person that we address when we say, Our Father, which art in heaven. Now, what we need to understand here is when we're talking about this kind of father and having seed, well, let me ask you, well, who in the Bible did God give very significant promises that he would give him seed or offspring, and he would bless his offspring or seed? You know who I'm talking about, don't you? Abraham. Abraham. And so this is saying that, that Jesus is like Abraham, except in a far greater way. That just as Abraham was the founding father of the nation of God's people, the nation of Israel, and that from him, God brought forth his covenant people, Israel, that in a far more significant way, Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, and indeed the Son of God, has become the founding father of the covenant people of God. He's not our father in the sense like God the father. He's our father like Father Abraham is the father of his people. He is the progenitor, so to speak, of the people of God. And this is covenantal language because the covenant with Abraham is a shadow of the eternal covenant that the father had made with the son so that the son would become the father of a people. Think about what it says in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and so on and so forth. Now that, what's he saying there? Well, blessed, blessed be God, that's worshiping God. He has blessed us, that's covenantal language. That was the promise that God made to Abraham. 
And when he calls him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, how often in the Old Testament do we hear of the God of Abraham? It's covenantal language. I have to be careful. I'm starting to preach Ephesians now. I love the book of Ephesians. It's wonderful. But that's not our text. The point I'm making is that Jesus Christ has won by his sacrifice a family. We asked before, what is the joy that was set before him? It's us. It's us. It was redeeming us and making us his spiritual family. And and you might be thinking, well, creating a family out of death? I mean, that's like bringing life out of death. And that's exactly what this text is saying. Because you'll notice that after it says, he shall see his offspring, it says, he shall prolong his days. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't it say back in um, verse 8 that he was cut off out of the land of the living? How can you do that? I mean, you're either cut off and dead or you live a long life. Which is it? And it's both. Because out of his death, this text is saying he is going to rise again. He's going to rise again. He's going to live a long and satisfying life. How's eternity for a long life? And he will see and enjoy forever the spiritual family that he has bought with his blood. By the way, this is one reason why when people try and explain Isaiah 53 by saying, well, this isn't about Jesus, this is about Isaiah or Jeremiah or somebody like that, it just doesn't work. Because none of those men died and then rose again. There's only one person who's ever done that. Only one person who died and rose again and by his death purchased the people of God, and that's Jesus Christ, the Son. And so, my friends, here we see the first reason why, why it is that there is joy to be found in the very cross and passion and death of our Lord. It is because He now has the joy of having a spiritual family that he purchased and he will forever look upon us. He will forever be with us in glory knowing that the reason why we are gathered to him, the reason why we are with him and seeing his glory is because of what he did upon the cross. Do you think that's you think that's joy? Do you think that gives God pleasure in seeing the immense family from every tribe and language and nation and people? And my friends, God is saying to us, enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. Make this your joy. You know, This text earlier in in verses 1 through 3 emphasizes the fact that Christ was despised. And when someone is despised, basically 
what is said to him, either through word or action, is you don't belong. But my friends, the way that Christ has glorified God in his death is he has taken people who truly didn't belong, who didn't belong to the family of God, who didn't belong to the kingdom of God, and by his guilt offering, making atonement for our sins, he has taken us from being outsiders to being insiders. So that now he says to us, all these ways that you have tried to belong, All these things that you thought were going to satisfy that hunger that I created within you to be a part of something, to be on the inside, to be included, to be welcomed, to be loved. Maybe it was by being part of a certain family. And you know, I've got a certain last name. I'm a smally or whatever it might be. Maybe you defined yourself by some human characteristic. You know, today people seem to be very intent on defining themselves by factors like race or gender identity or sexual orientation, all three of which are artificial categories that do not truly describe who we are. And all our attempts to define ourselves and to have a sense of belonging only end up with more division, more fracturing, more fighting and conflict amongst us. And Jesus Christ says to us, I will define who you are. And I will define you, my people, by this one thing. Not in any way that the world defines you. But I will define you, and I give you this identity. You belong to me. You are mine. I chose you, God says. I bought you with my own blood. You are my seed. You are my family. I take you to myself, and you are now defined by me and your relationship to me. And my friends, if that is true of you, if you've come to Jesus Christ and you've trusted in him, you no longer have to grasp after some other way to say, I belong. You you no longer have to find some glory to be part of because the glory of the living God has been given to you and he claims you as his own. You are his And so you don't have to be defined by who your parents were. You don't have to be defined by who your children are and what they accomplish or do not accomplish. You are not defined by what social circle you belong to. You are not defined by your physical appearance. You are not defined by your social status. You are defined by this. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. You are defined by Jesus Christ. He bought you. You are his family. And God is happy about it. 
That's the first great cause of joy that God gives as to why the cross of Christ is a cause of joy for God and also for us. The second cause of joy is found in verse 11. And that's this, that Christ has the joy not only of being the founding father of God's covenant people, but also of being the justifying righteousness of God's covenant people. It is his joy to be the justifying righteousness of God's covenant people. Now, I know that sounds exceedingly theological, and it is. But trust me, it is very sweet. So look with me at this text, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, or it's accurately translated as justified, and he shall bear their iniquities. So here again, it starts with joy. It starts with the satisfaction of the servant. As a result of his anguish, his trouble, his hard labor, the servant shall see, some ancient texts have, he shall see light, which would be a figure of speech for him again possessing life, but maybe it's just he will see and be satisfied. In other words, he will be deeply satisfied with the results that he sees coming from his death. And what is it? that satisfies Jesus? What is it that makes him say, I have no regrets for going to the cross? It is this, that by his knowledge, it says, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now, there's something about this text that's a little bit of a challenge for us in English. And that's because we have two different sets of words that we use for justify and righteous. You can even hear it. They sound different. They come from different roots. But in Hebrew, it's the same word in two different forms. And so it could be translated, the righteous one will make righteous. They even sound the same. Righteous one is tzaddik and To justify is yatzdik. Do you hear it? And if we don't even get the point between the connection, in the Hebrew text, the words are right next to each other. So what the Hebrew actually says is yatzdik tzaddik. In other words, righteous justify. I can even express this. In other words, he is righteous And that's why he makes us righteous. And when it says justify, it's not talking about changing our character so that we actually become better people. That's a different grace that God gives also with justification. When it says justify, this is the act of a judge who declares someone to be righteous in the sight of the law. And so what this is saying is that Jesus Christ has accomplished that we 
are now, if we trust in him alone for salvation, we are justified or declared righteous by the judge, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. He was righteous, and it's counted to us. There's a remarkable picture of this given to us in the book of Zechariah, which is full of visions and images where a man is standing before God and Satan's accusing him. And he's dressed in filthy clothes. And this is not good because the man happens to be the high priest. For a high priest to be in the presence of God in an unclean state is death. But God doesn't kill him God doesn't say, yes, Satan, you're right. No. God says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And then he has those filthy clothes removed from this man, and he's given bright, beautiful, clean garments to stand before God in a way that's acceptable to him. Do you understand that this is what Jesus Christ has accomplished? That you stand before God in yourself is one who is dirty and unclean. God knows all the sins you've ever done. The bad things you've thought, the bad things you've said, the bad things you've done. But what Jesus Christ has done by living a perfect and sinless life is he has, as it were, made a new set of clothes. A clean and pure set of clothes. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, what God does is he takes those dirty, rotten, stinking, smelly, awful clothes that you have made for yourself, and he takes them and throws them away. And he clothes you in beautiful, clean, bright, perfect robes of righteousness. So that when he looks at you, he thinks immediately of Jesus. And he says, that's my righteous servant. And he counts you as righteous for Christ's sake. And you might say, but, but what about my sins? Doesn't God need to deal with my sins? How can he count me righteous when I've sinned? Well, look at the text. Because after it says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And then it says, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus dealt with your sins. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin. He had no sin, no sin in anything he'd ever thought or done, no sin hidden in his heart. He was pure as the freshly fallen snow, and God made him to be sin. Not by making Jesus to be corrupt or something like that. No, but by taking the guilt, the liability to punishment that we deserve. And like it says in verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And God did that so that you, believer in Jesus Christ, would now be the righteousness of God in him. 
And again, just as Jesus was not made sin by actually becoming a worse person, this is not talking about God making us into better people. That is a gift of his grace. When he saves someone, he does change our hearts. But oh, we are still such mixtures of sin and righteousness. We could never stand before God on the basis of who we are. And so what God does is just as he counted your sin against Christ on the cross, he counts Christ's obedience to you when you trust in him. This is what theologians call imputation. Imputation, the counting or legal reckoning of what we have done to Christ and what Christ has done to us. And you say, well, how can that be possible? I mean, how could that be fair for God to punish someone else for my sins and for God to credit to me what he has done? Well, here again, the answer, just as we saw in verse 10, how how that was rooted in God's covenant. The answer is in God's covenant. God has constituted Jesus Christ to be our covenant representative. That just as Adam, our first father, stood before God as our representative, so Jesus Christ, in a far greater way, stood before God as the representative of his people by covenant, so that he truly was one with us. And he properly did represent us and could act as our substitute and what the Bible calls our surety, the one who pays our debt. And this is what gives believers freedom. You know, when, when we think about the fact that Jesus is coming back and that all mankind will be gathered before him and, and we will stand before him and he will judge us. And the one who judges us knows everything. I mean, there's no cover-ups. There's no hiding anything. There's no excuses. There's no blaming anybody else. He knows us through and through. How will we ever be able to stand before a holy and righteous king whose eyes are like flames of fire, who searches us, who knows us completely, and who is utterly uncompromising in his justice. How is it that we will avoid being cast into hell forever? How is it that we will not look ahead to that coming of the glory of God with dread and terror and just hope that it doesn't happen, hope that we can somehow escape it? Well, I'll tell you how. Paul tells us how in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. In Romans chapter 5, and verses 1 and 2, Paul says the best possible news to sinners. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Could be translated boast or glory in hope 
of the glory of God. Do you see the connection there? We are able to look forward to the coming of that infinite glory, the coming of Judgment Day itself, not with fear and shame and dread, but with hope and joy and boasting. Why? Because we are justified by faith in Christ. The verdict has already been given. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you are about to be brought before a judge and you know that you are guilty, you know that you deserve the worst sentence that is possible to be inflicted. But before that time comes, the judge himself visits you in your cell. And the judge says to you, I want you to know I am going to declare you not guilty. How would that change your perspective on Judgment Day? How would that cause you to enter into the courtroom? Perhaps deeply humbled, but with great joy. Because you knew that even though you deserved to be taken down for what you had done, this was going to be the day of your release. You're going free. My friends, because of what Jesus Christ has done, he has made many to be accounted righteous. The righteous one has given his righteousness to us for our justification we can have the hope and the joy that Judgment Day will be a good day for us and not a bad day. And think about the joy and satisfaction that Jesus will have as he welcomes person after person after person into his kingdom And yes, it is true, he will examine our works on Judgment Day, but my friends, he will not examine our works for the merit or worthiness to enter into heaven. It's not going to be, as a Muslim friend of mine once told me, that, well, he's just hoping that that when the time comes, that his good deeds will outweigh his bad deeds. That's not the way it's going to work. Our deeds will only be evidence that we have a true and living relationship to Jesus Christ. But it will be very plain on Judgment Day that there's only one reason we're getting into the kingdom. It's not because we deserve it. It's because he earned it for us. And think about the honor and glory and joy that is going to belong to Jesus Christ on that day as he welcomes person after person after person into the eternal kingdom and he will know that it was because of what he did. It is because of what he accomplished. It is his righteousness that is bringing you and you and you and you and even me into the kingdom of God. Do you see why Jesus would have no regrets? This is worth it. This is worth it. This is something to rejoice in. But not only is Jesus Christ the founding father of God's covenant people and the justifying righteousness of God's covenant people, but he is also 
the victorious king of God's covenant people. The victorious king of God's covenant people. And I want to draw your attention lastly to verse 12. It says there, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. First of all, notice here the spoils of victory for the servant and for many. The spoils of victory. And when it says, I will divide him a portion, he shall divide, and the word spoil there, that's battlefield language. That's the language that's used when one side decisively wins a battle and now they get to claim the spoils. They get to find and take home all the riches and treasures of their enemies and they are now the rich ones. So the picture here is of Christ as a victorious warrior. He has fought the ultimate battle against evil, and even though it looked like he was the loser, he was actually the one who conquered through his own humiliation and death. Sometimes people talk about what theologians call the Christus victor theme of the scriptures, that Christ is the victor, and they, think, they say that is the main idea of why Jesus died. And I agree that Christ did accomplish victory through his death, but his victory, we must see, is only by his substitution. Why was it that the devil had power over us? Why was it that that we were in such dire straits? It was because of the guilt of our sins. It was it's not because the devil was smarter than us. It wasn't because the devil was more powerful than we are. The devil could do nothing to the human race until the human race willfully disobeyed our God. And therefore, our victory over Satan, and indeed our victory over death, our victory over our evil, must be based upon this. Notice, he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus understood this. Jesus understood this. In fact, think about what this means for God's servant. There's a promise here. This is not written after Jesus died. This was written before Jesus died. So think about Jesus as a man. He's both God and true man. Think about Jesus reading Isaiah. And he's reading, verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. He's going to have to carry the sins of his people. 
What is going to give him the strength to do this? What is going to give him the hope that this will be worthwhile? He shall bear their iniquities, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. Therefore, he says, God the Father says, My son, because you will suffer for their sins and die in their place, therefore, my son, this is my pledge to you, I will make you a victorious king and I will give you riches of grace and glory that you will then share with your people. And in case we don't see the connection, it goes on, it says, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. My friends, Jesus was deeply conscious of these promises as he went to the cross. How do we know that? Because he quoted them. He quoted them. Luke 22, verse 37. It says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And later in Luke chapter 24, he rebukes people. He says, why are you so slow to believe the prophets that the Christ must suffer and enter his glory? Christ went through this trusting in the promises of God, that God had made a covenant with him, the Father and the Son, an unbreakable promise that when the Son endured the wrath of God for his covenant elect people, the Father would give him glory. And thus Jesus was able for the joy that was set before him to scorn the shame of the cross because he knew it would lead to glory. He had his father's word on it. This was an eternal promise made between the father and the son. It's revealed 700 years before the fact Jesus went to the cross with absolute determination that he was going to do his Father's will. In John 12, verses 27 to 28, and this gives us such insight into the very human nature of our Lord. He says, now is my soul troubled. Folks, we really have no concept of how much it cost Christ. But he sensed it even before the full weight of it came falling down upon his soul. Now is my soul troubled. But listen to what he says next. He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
You see, even as Jesus is moving ahead, even as he looks up and he sees, as it were, the sword of Almighty God about to fall upon his soul, he looks further ahead because God has given him his covenant promise. This will not end this way. This will end in glory. God will be glorified. Christ will be glorified. And countless people will be blessed forever because of what he's about to do. And he says, yes, Father. Yes, Father. I will do it. I will do it. And he accomplished our redemption forever. And my friends, this is the very thing that can give us the strength to say, yes, Father, yes, Father, I will follow Jesus. As we look down that path and we see this is going to be very hard. Perhaps, perhaps at certain points of our lives, obeying the Lord and trusting him will be harder than anything we have ever thought possible that we could do. We may find ourselves in places where we say, I just can't do this, God. I just can't do this. But as we look at the covenant promises of God, the promises that say, my son has gone to the cross and he has suffered so that he would have seed, so that all who trust in him will be part of his family. Then we will say, yes, Father. I will trust him. And even if all the world rejects me, even if my own family rejects me, I will be part of your family. And when Satan comes, and Satan comes and he reminds us of our sins, he reminds us of all the the evil things that we have been guilty of, and he tells us how worthy we are to be damned and rejected by God. We come back to the covenant promises of God. And we say, God, you promised that your righteous servant would justify many. And therefore, Father, I am banking my only hope, my only hope upon what he has done. And it's enough. You've said so. It's enough. And when you feel like following Jesus is the way of losing, maybe losing your job, maybe losing your liberty. It's entirely possible that someone in this room could be called by God to face prison for doing what is right and simply speaking the truth of God in a society that has gone insane. You can say, I can lose everything in this world and I'm still rich because Jesus Christ has the victory, and he will divide the spoils with me. My friends, 
Jesus Christ is more than a conqueror. He's more than a conqueror because not only did he survive his sufferings and make it through, but his own sufferings became the means by which he entered into mediatorial glory. If you follow Jesus, you're more than a conqueror too. And you can have joy. You can have joy and hope because your identity is not found in this world, but it's found in the fact that you belong to him. Because your righteousness is not based upon what you have done. It's based upon what he has done. And your riches are not earthly treasures that people can take away from you. But your riches are in a new heavens and a new earth, and they'll never wear out. They'll never get rusty. They will always be good and sweet and happy. Folks, the happiness that Jesus has to share with us is out of this world. So I say to you, if you're a child of God, be encouraged. Remind yourself of these truths. Cling to Christ. And by all means, think often of what he did when he died on the cross. But remember, he's not on the cross anymore. He's risen from the dead, and we will rise with him. And if you're not a Christian, if you're still perhaps considering this, or or maybe you've thrown up the walls and tried to lock God out, then I say to you that you, despite all of your rebellion and sin and unbelief, you too are invited to follow the Lord. You are called by God to Follow Jesus Christ, and I can say to you with 100% certainty that you will have no regrets, because Jesus has no regrets. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give to us a deeper and more constant joy and hope and peace because of what Jesus has accomplished that you would work it down into our souls so that even when our world is shaken, Lord, that we would not be shaken because we have set the Lord before us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.